0: You are listening to the Cast.
1: Hey, crack climbers. Do you want a crack shoe that can easily do it all? From toddler-sized thin tips to soul-crushing off widths and every single size in between? Well, too bad. Because frankly, that shoe doesn't exist. So this is where the word quiver comes in. Serious rock climbers simply don't rely on a single pair of shoes for everything, amigos. And Sportiva is more than happy to supply the goods. Start with the TC Pro, and you've got the monster-wide, all-witted, thin hands covered. Then a pair of Eco Mythos will pick up the slack in those smaller, hardest-stuff sizes. Incidentally, both face-climb like butter, too. Well, not all slippery and greasy like actual butter, but, you know, delicious and satisfying. Then for the really, really thin stuff, well, you're kind of on your own because those Campfire Indian Creek debates can rage late into the night. Loose sport-climbing or bouldering shoe? That's not a bad bet. Or just stuff those TC pros and get strong. That works for some. Paddle outside the crack. Seen a lot of really good climbers go that route. Personally, I run a sized up Mira or Katana and grimace and go. But whatever size is your crack dream or nightmare, Sportiva has the right weapons to drop into your quiver. And they're built to outlast even the most pitiful flailing. Check it all out at sportiva.com or the local shop that really, really could use your business right now. If there's one thing that has been relentlessly beat into your climbing psyche, it's that off with climbing is heinous. The worst, only the realm of the truly sadomasochistic. Don't even try it, you wimps, because it's just not for you. And yet, the psychos at Black Dot. <coughs> And yet the psychos at Black Diamond have decided to up the ante, go all in, call your bluff. Use whatever gambling metaphor you want here because I'm just riffing. But anyway, those miscreant engineers have really done it this time with the number 21 Camelot. That's right, number 21 Camelot. Where did the 7 to 20 Camelots go? Who knows? But the number 21 Camelot is the biggest Camelot ever made so big that 32 fighter jets need to be recycled to make one number 21 Camelot. So if like most off-with-aficionados, you've dreamed of scooching that top rope all the way to the anchors, even on a pretty comfy chimney, check out Black Diamond's new large and in-charge number 21 Camelot at BlackDiamondEquipment.com Listen, uh, where are you playing
0: in Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh it's yeah, big, big place. That out. of town. That's very a big nice. place. You sold oh, that that 20,
1: I'll we really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic, so those hands are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you.
0: I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Red weather. Red weather. No, Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes.
1: And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on Great Coffee and to support the Enorma cast
0: And now back to the show. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast, this is your host Chris Caluse. It is about 10.30pm on March 31st, 2020. How's your 2020 gone? 2020 is being a bit of a fucking asshole, is it not? Anyway, this is episode 195 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with British climber, Crackmaster, master of many climbing realms actually, Mr. Tom Randall. Yes, we have a soothing British accent on the show today. Perfect. But a bit of news for you before that. I'm not going to bang on the coronavirus thing too much. There's too much information out there beating down our doors at every moment. But I do want to give a shout out to Sportiva, one of my longtime sponsors, very faithful sponsor, very great to work with. I push the limits of their commercials as much as anybody, and uh, they never seem to mind. They never seem to mind, even when I do voices. But as you know, they produce most of their shoes in Italy, and of course, Italy is not doing that well at the moment. So shout out to them. I hope the employees over there in Italy are staying safe. And also, like a lot of different climbing companies, they are turning some of their production towards making some masks and some medical supplies for the effort over there. So shout out to them. Their website's open. The Sportiva North America is stocked and uh, can get some shoes out to you if you want to buy some right now. Now, what would break up that quarantine better than opening a fresh pair of Sportiva smelling that fine Italian leather, even if you can't actually use them right now? Unless you have a home wall. But who uses their brand new shoes on their home wall? Anyhow, La Sportiva, thanks for being there for me for so many years. And again, hopefully your Italian counterparts are doing okay. Second thing is the number 21 Camelot is out. Things huge. You better go check it out. But it's not cheap. All that aluminum, all that tech, all that specialty does not come cheap. But what does come cheap is the Tame the Monster t shirt that goes with the number 21 Camelot campaign. And all the net proceeds from that t shirt go to the access fund. So go over to Black Diamond and check out the number 21 Camelot and the Tame the Monster T. My other loyal sponsor, Black Diamond, it's been great to have these two companies just on board almost the whole damn time. Makes life easy for me. I'll tell you that right now. Last bit of business today is I want to. Make sure you know that Luke Mihal has started a podcast. Dirtbag state of mind. You can check it out anywhere podcasts are not sold, just given away. That's how we do it here in podcast land. We just give it to you and hope you appreciate it. Maybe enough to give us some money or to buy something from our sponsors. But anyway, I digress. Luke Mihal of The Climbing Zine has started his own podcast, which is a good idea. ties together, I think, quite nicely with everything that he does over at the climbing zine that they do the team does over at the climbing zine so again dirtbag state of mind if you got a little room in your podcast queue for something new check it out okay on to the guest talk a little bit about the guest tom randall tom needed shelter from the storm literally showed up at my house in a snowstorm trying to get across the mountains to uh, Boulder. We had made arrangements for him to stop by, but it just turned out that he he needed respite from the storm anyway. Spent the night. We got a great interview in my comfortable study and uh, sent him on his way in the morning in better weather. So it was great to have him over here. Tom is known probably most in the States for being one of the duo with Pete Whitaker that just crush cracks out in the desert, including Sentry Crack, this famous upside down, gigantic, long off width. And we spent a lot of time talking about those cracks, but he's actually a really accomplished climber in a great many realms, including the infamous gritstone, scary, hard stuff there back in his home country in the UK. And quite a good sport climber as well. So this guy knows his stuff and is super passionate about climbing. It was a real joy to talk to him. Plus, it's always nice to talk to someone that's even more into cracks than I am. All right, so let's do it. Let's just relax. Let ourselves luxuriate in Tom's accent like a well-worn leather recliner. Just sink into it. Hmm, you needed that. Hey climbers, that rock that you lovingly caress every weekend is just never going to love you back. Of course, it's never going to suddenly ask you what you're thinking right now either. But devoting even a tenth of that energy into an actual human relationship might be a better bet in terms of love and companionship no matter what your alpinist friends say. Peter W. Gilroy is here to help. Climber and jewelry maker, Peter can hook you up with just the right gift for that human in your life who just smiles when you get home late from the crag or who is still belaying you even though you're falling lower and lower on your proj. Inspired by the rocks we climb and the mountains we love, Peter's jewelry and accessories might be just the thing to convince your significant other that you're not an obsessive crazy person in love with inanimate objects. So go to PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount on art you can wear and to help the EnormoCast. cast. Uh, first of all, welcome to Carbondale. This is really great that you showed up because uh, you and I have been dancing the dance of the Enorma cast, as I like to call it, for shit like three years or maybe more. So thanks for coming to Carbondale. You're passing through and um, I've provided you shelter from the storm as well. But in return, you're sitting down to do a podcast with me. So thanks for coming. Seems like a perfectly fair exchange of, uh, <laughs> of items. Yeah, sounds good to me. That's awesome. So what are you doing here on, on this trip? Or what have you been doing? You're actually kind of at the tail end of it. Yeah, uh, so I've, I've got
0: one more week left in the States. And I've been kind of touring around with a couple of, a couple of friends. Um, a friend Mary from uh, Moab and Danny from... Uh, Salt Lake City Danny Mary
1: Pat. aka Trad Princess yes okay
0: yep and Danny aka whatever his what is. Yeah,
1: Instagram but thing is I think Mary's is more like got more oomph it's got a thing about it. Yeah, and I yeah. I didn't really... I mean, when you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's her name. But all I know her from is, is Instagram Trad Princess. So anyway, but yeah, and Danny and uh, continue. Sorry, I interrupted. That's <laughs> oh, right. So yeah, I've been climbing with
0: uh, uh, Danny um, Parker, Parker yeah. who is really into crack climbing and off-wit thing as well. And we've been down to Red Rocks, J-Tree, a little bit of Moab, but freeze that balls off. And then uh Zion for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Then I've been doing a little bit of coaching in Salt Lake and now I'm heading off to Boulder.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some highlights. You've only it was a couple of weeks, right? Just to like a quick yeah. hit. Yeah. Kind of thing. So yeah, tell me a little bit of highlight from like Joshua Tree or whatnot. Uh so so J Tree, I actually have been there. I was trying to work it out. I think it was about
0: 16, 17 years ago and I went there when my dad was living and working in California and he'd given me his Toyota, is it a Camry? Sure. Oh yeah. Very basic car. Yeah, yeah. And I'd driven across across the Mojave Desert and turned up in Joshua Tree, kind of really psyched for climbing and parked up at a campsite, jumped out and just run around the campsite looking at all these boulders. First boulder I jumped off I fell and twisted my ankle really, really badly. Really? (laughs) Straight off the bat. And I never climbed there. Really? Yeah. And it's just... So all I'd ever done in J-Tree was jump off a boulder and sprain my ankle.
1: And that was the last time you were there? Yeah. And this is back. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so, cool. Yeah. So what'd you get into? So just did loads of the classics. Uh uh, Loads of really good, you know, 511s and 512s. Things that I've seen photos and videos of over the years and just had a really really enjoyable tour of stuff i've thought about for a really long time Uh uh-huh and i was saying to uh, some of the people i was climbing over there that it felt like i was collecting collecting photos in reality because i dream and sort of envision a lot of these places but Uh i only ever see them in a in a photo or a video right and then you turn up and you're there with the thing. And it's this really weird experience when you've looked at something so much, but then suddenly you're at the base or on right, the route. Right,
1: It's bizarre. I, I mean, I love it. And, uh, and you guys had good weather. Yeah. Awesome. Really good, yeah. because yeah, the weather in the desert this year has been grim, at least in the last couple months. And uh, I was worried because I knew you were coming because we had already started talking about this. Of uh, Once again, you know, I'm like Jason Tom Randall trying to get him on the show. And because I just, you know, it's like the more accents, the better. So... You know, we had already been talking about it and then as it was creeping up and I've been watching too, because I've got my own desires on the desert climbing, at least in the south in southeast uh Utah. And uh man, I was just like, Oh geez, it's looking pretty grim. Isn't he supposed to be here in like three days? And uh I was talking with Danny and Ashley too about going down to 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 uh the Northwash near Hanksville. I'm just like, Oh god, it's like oh shit and then all of a sudden there's like three inches of snow and i'm like oh man he's gonna be here in like a week so i'm really happy that you like changed trajectories and 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 got a really good trip out of it even so because yeah uh, yeah january's a little hit or miss even in southern utah so i felt like i did the full scale of
0: right from the worst which was the the foot i'm pretty sure the first thing that we actually climbed was in moab Mm -hmm. and there was snow on the ground at the base of wall street and like a Barely feel my hands on right. on anything, and that was a really good thing to do because we essentially went. There's no chance we can climb here, so then we moved down to Red Rocks after that, okay. and Red Rocks is kind of a bit more bearable. But then we looked at the forecast for Joshua Tree and went, "No, nah, we should go there."
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, because you can just like, you know, this is my goal, and I'm just going to grind it out and have a miserable time, <laughs> or you like go with the flow and find yourself in J Tree and enjoying yourself for for a while cuz yeah it hasn't been nice. I I canceled a trip this last week out to uh out to the desert cuz I just was like I don't know, man, I'm too old to be stuffing my arthritic fingers in some f- ice box little crack somewhere and twisting them as hard as I possibly can. It's bad enough when the weather's good, you know. So um so let's uh you know talk a little bit about your um beginnings and and I really want to talk about how someone like yourself coming up climbing in the UK you know, certainly a trad climber. That's not that unusual, but uh, to become sort of enamored as you are with cracks and with off widths and and all that sort of thing. So let's start with a little bit about your beginnings as a climber and growing up and and uh, how how you ended up getting getting hooked into it. Well, I think I mean it all started
0: at the latter end of my school years, and so I started climbing around sixteen or seventeen years old. And I was really into loads of other sports. And then they, they had this random bouldering, traversing competition at my school that some kid, in the I think the year above me, had organised and had somehow managed to beg a couple of chalk bags off a local climbing wall and they were going to give them away as a prize. And I had a go at this traversing, bouldering competition, you know, I think in a lunchtime. And it's just one of those moments where you do something and think, this is so much fun. I love this already. And I straight away got into that problem solving, very involved in the detail thing within climbing. And mm-hmm. as soon as I did that competition, I remember going out there every lunchtime at school and trying to create all sorts of different variations of this traverse and we'd eliminate footholds and handholds. And that was right from the start. I just seemed to sort of suit my personality right. in some sort of way. Um, and at the same time, what I, did this
1: wall look like?
0: So it was a, the outside of a, you know, school gymnasium, right. flat concrete wall. And then it had, you know, those gray entreprise disc holds uh-huh. that you, they used to have a little bit of resin on the back, I think. And there were semi disc or hexagons. Yeah.
1: They were like hexes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and they were horrible. Yeah, sharp and... Yeah, yeah really yeah. sharp. But yeah. And it, it was back in the days when we thought it was good to make things like real rock. Right. And yeah, they were just bolted along to the okay, wall. Okay, cool. It,
1: it looked awful. Right. But at the time, it seemed like... I was wondering if it went as far as back as to, like, glued on rocks. No. Because people, yeah, those existed. did those do a existed. lot of that. Right, right,
0: right on. But this, it, I mean, it was a school, so yeah. they'd probably put a few hundred quid into a pot. Right. and bought something from (laughs) entreprise right
1: on yeah so so you're starting to get hooked on this like game that you're playing on this wall
0: yeah and and so so i did that and i really got into this and i think there was one or two people in the year above who just happened to like some climbing and at the same time someone in my year had just started climbing and i just kind of coincidentally came became friends with him and it was just the sort of time at school where I'd really realised that I kind of hated the system and I needed something to be able to rebel and express myself in some kind of way. And uh, the friend was like, well, I've got ropes and I've got harnesses. Let's go and abseil or repel off bridges and let's climb trees and just do random crap on buildings. We used to go out at night time in the town and climb up, you know, all the buildings in town and just have a lot of fun and kind of, go along the edge of what was legal and illegal. Right. And it, that just seemed like the coolest thing ever. Right. <laughs> That's what I thought climbing was. Right. And I didn't know anything about grades and rock or or any of that sort of stuff for, you know, a while actually. Um So I was fully hooked before I even understood what track climbing was and and all that sort of stuff. And all the rules and, yeah, all the traditions and all that
1: sort of thing. Yeah, no idea. Yeah.
0: I just thought right. it was a cool way to break the rules Mm-hmm hang out with someone who seemed like they were good fun and express myself in a way that wasn't like the the system. Right. And w-
1: where did you grow up? Uh
0: down in the southwest of England. Okay. Um so it was
1: like not a traditionally climbing no, area. Not, like not climbing really. part of of
0: of England. Uh
1: yeah, the the best local stuff
0: we had was climb on a brick wall. Okay. Or climb yeah. a building.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, and it's cool how like you know I, the origin story thing. We go there a lot on on the Enorma cast because I'm, you know, I'm I'm both interested in like the novel parts of a person's story, but I'm also always interested in the in the like archetypes and and what you just said about like feeling out of place within the school system, within whatever track that you're supposed to be on, as you know, a young up and coming person in, in your society, wherever you are, like, that's a pretty common archetype. And I'm sure you've, you know, you've kind of felt that within the climbing community that you grew into of like a lot of misfits, a lot of people looking for something different. Um, So, so that's kind of like why I go there a lot is I'm just always interested in which variation you, you've been on as, as a climber and as a person. And if it's the same as, you know, in Libertyville, Illinois, where I grew up, is that really similar most people wouldn't think it was similar to, to where you grew up, but here we both were thinking like, God, this whole school thing blows. Like, what, what yeah. am I supposed to do, you know, to keep myself entertained? It's, there's, there's drinking and there's drugs and there's this and there's that. And oh, but there's also this other thing that maybe uh, is even cooler, you know?
0: Yeah, and it has no rules as well. Right. I really like that. No rules. So you could kind of do whatever you wanted within the game. And you also... Had so much of like a problem-solving element to it. Mm -hmm. Like even when I first started climbing, and like I said, I've got that traverse wall, and I was all about eliminates, and it seemed the natural thing to do. No one's told us to do it; it was just the thing to do. And then when I found this brick wall near to my house, was I remember writing and making these really elaborate topos and drawing little X's and dots with coloured paint on this, you know, urban brick wall and creating variations different grades low traverses high traverses eliminates ones where you could only use two fingers ones where you could only use one finger and i just love that you know problem solving really involved process but i could do it under my terms and i spent a lot of my early years just climbing on my
1: own as well i like that so what about when you kind of did enter the um the sort of tried and true part of climbing the the community because when you're talking about like no rules it really started to make me think right away i'm like yeah but there once you get into it there are rules you know it's like everybody's watching each other and how you get to the top becomes becomes really uh an important part of it and for us or for me anyway when we talk about tradition and and all these rules that we sort of live by in climbing, I always say, yeah, a lot of them came from the UK, you know, came from these original dudes making up what it meant to call a free ascent or free ascent, all those sorts of things. So when you interfaced with actual, you know, climbing as we know it, was there any sort of like dissonance for you between like this no rules idea or fitting in with, you know, what everybody else thought climbing meant? I mean, my my first interactions with, you know,
0: proper climbing in the, in the UK-British scene was through guidebooks. I don't really know why I got into it, but I used to love reading guidebooks from start to finish, you know. Right. And the old school guidebooks, yeah, they yeah. have any pictures, just reading every route description, all of the history behind it. And I very quickly got into this whole thing of, but there's a first ascent that you can have. And the first ascent doesn't, no one's done it before. There's no rules to say what grade it was, right. how you have to climb it, what style you have to approach it in. You can do it at whatever crag you want. And that very, very quickly became the thing that I wanted to do within climbing right from the outset. And I think I can't have even done that many routes before I started doing first ascenting. Okay. It was, it was so important to me. Yeah, I mean, a first ascent, even on the worst rock and the worst route would be way more value to me personally mm-hmm. than repeating a classic, and it was like that right from the early days.
1: And so in your in your uh, evolution as a climber, where where did you show up first? As as uh, again, moving away from your your brick wall down the street, in, in this place where there wasn't really any climbing. Where what was the scene? The scene. Did you was, go to college or something? Or university? yeah, I went to, yeah. went to university right. uh, in Sheffield. So okay. you know,
0: a, a big part of British climbing. Mm-hmm. And and I joined the university clubs
1: there. So did you go um, to university in Sheffield because of the climbing there?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Right. So I, I
0: traversed around on my brick wall yeah.
1: down, <laughs> down south and done a
0: couple of first ascent right. sort of stuff. And then, yeah, Sheffield was the place to turn up to. And, and I felt like I could only ever make my way in climbing and improve as a climber get access to more first ascents and meet all these people that had really inspired me in magazines in particular. Um, some of the, like there's a British magazine called on the edge, which was a a big part of the culture back then. And getting to come up to Sheffield and meet some of those people and be inspired by them was the thing to do. But I struggled when I first came up and, and I didn't like the, the scene, the fact that you had to be part of it. You would go to certain pubs and first couple of years I, just I skirted around on the fringes Mm -hmm. really uh I didn't really I I dabbled in and out of it I didn't like it right I know it sounds really lame but I just wasn't into it
1: no no I I don't think it sounds lame at all because it's it to me I think that anybody would be intimidated or maybe turned off in your case you know because it's to my knowledge, and, and again, we have this lore that, I mean, for, for anyone in, interested in climbing history, like Sheffield is one of these places in the world that you just hear about. But it does sound like a very clicky scene and, and you know, a lot of proving to each other who's who and who's in the pecking, or at least years ago, um, it was it was clearly that, like, there were certain people that, that were, you know— the masters and and you sort of worked your way towards them and and that kind of thing. So I can imagine someone like you, again, coming from this no rules zone, this idea of like, I get to express myself any way I want, you know, that probably would turn you off a little bit.
0: Yeah. Being being able
1: to have to prove yourself or, you know, live in this sort of pecking order of who's who. Yeah. And
0: I didn't like the cliquey nature because the first house that I rented in Sheffield after I finished university was a proper climber's house. And there were a lot of really strong cool climbers in it Mm -hmm. and i remember asking about whether i could go to the schoolroom you know the kind of famous training facility sure and it was just a no (laughs) and then i asked i remember really really clearly asking if i could go to raven tour with someone to just hang around and watch them film a famous climber right so i just thought can i just i won't even impact you i'm not going to be any you know, pain at all. Can I just come in the car? I just want to see what's going on. No. No. <laughs> I just got rejected from that as well. And so I, yeah, I, I didn't do well. <laughs> that's a, that's, I that's couldn't even turn up as the
1: video monkey you know, right on the side. On. Yeah, that that's a drag, man. I, that's wild because I just like, I've never participated in a scene like that. But again, that, that actually sort of fulfills a little bit of what I've always wondered about. That really tight, knit and resource limited type of climbing where everybody's like gunning for the same stuff kind of a thing too. But, uh, and then yeah. that whole training mentality that we really learned about, I think from Sheffield, like that's the first time I ever heard of like, you know, these sellers and the training and, you know, uh, the schoolhouse and all this stuff, you know, uh, Ben Moon and Jerry Muffin, you know, and it's like, speaks to that when I hear about it, like, again, you know, guys throwing down and, and seeing who's the best and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it is it is fair or is or
0: was fairly macho. Right. It was pretty exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I look back at it now and I think, was that OK? And should it be that way? But in some ways, that quite hardline culture around it bred a an attitude of, well, you're only going to be here if you deserve it. And you have actually got to be really good and it just doesn't cut it to be mediocre. Right. So the harsh environment around that I think cultivated really good high performing climbers and they wouldn't accept any crap around it. So whilst it did, I didn't particularly enjoy like trying to get into that scene Mm -hmm. and I I, I couldn't in any way really. Um, I think it created, it was the right environment to create some very good climbers. Nice. If not, uh very confident right
1: so if you now that you're in it and you're like one of the guys do you like do you like treat the newcomers like shit too
0: (laughs) i'm so not one of the guys though
1: (laughs) i'm like the least
0: cool person ever um you've just been waiting for that day that you could just be like no (laughs) yeah 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 well <laughs> when someone comes to my house when someone messages me and goes, Oh, could I come to the cellar? I go, Oh, it's the no. first person all oh, year that's asked me. Brilliant. Find me a friend. But no.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and and the cellar meaning your cellar. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Meaning that's this it. like crack laboratory. Um so let's uh, let's go to that because I think you know, at least in the your interface with the US in terms of like again, what I've seen in like your media here it has to do with um, crack climbing. It has to do with being in the in the desert and and doing these massive things like Century Crack and um, the the other ones that you've done down on the White Rim. And so talk about that. Like where so you're you're in Sheffield, you're cutting your teeth, you're you're out on the fringes, you're finding some first ascents to do. But what about crack climbing? I mean, it doesn't strike me that there's there again there's traditional climbing. But it doesn't look like crack climbing as far as I can tell and and what you guys are dealing with around Sheffield, at least in in that part of the UK. So talk about the crack climbing. How does that get? How does your main vein crack climbing addiction start up? Yes, you're right in saying that there there isn't a great deal of
0: good crack climbing in Sheffield or, you know, the whole UK really. but it, it all really started way back in probably to, uh, 1999 or 1998 when I first visited Yosemite when my dad was living out in California. And I did did a little bit of crack climbing back then. And I was just awful at it. I, I think the first ever route I tried was Reed's Pinnacle. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get up it. And I, I didn't understand any of it. And it just seemed to plant a seed way back then that it seemed very attractive to do something that I was very bad at and seemed to present a really big challenge. And so when I had the opportunity to try things that were in that style back in the UK, I tended to gravitate towards them because I really wanted to improve on them Mm -hmm. because my climbing ability across face climbing versus crack climbing was very, very disjointed. I was a 5'12 face climber, but I was a 5'8 crack climber. And so I just got drawn to trying to pull those two in line. And through that process of really trying to hone and direct myself towards that particular style, I realised I really enjoyed it. And I kind of ended up creating tick lists and hunting them out um, to do more and more of them. And it was about the time when I was just starting to tick off some of the 512s in crack in a crack climbing style in the UK that I, I then met Pete. Mm-hmm. And so he, because we met, you know, 10, no, actually it's like 12 years ago, he was in on that bit where I was just crossing the threshold of, oh, I'm doing the kind of mid-grade classics into I want to do some of the hard classics. And he just ended up joining me on that journey. Um, So I was already, I had an interest in it and I was definitely pursuing some of those styles of climbing, but I wasn't totally obsessed with crack climbing and it wasn't the only thing. Um, So it it was just a coincidence of meeting him and I'd also picked up an injury maybe a year before that where I couldn't uh, – like a you know like standard pulley injury that any climber gets. And I couldn't pull on crimps for maybe six months to nine months. And at that same time, that kind of catalyzed that whole thing of, well, I need to do something. I need to plow my energy into something. Mm-hmm. Why don't I do a style which doesn't hurt my injury? And that just helped it. So it was that perfect storm of having an interest in doing something that I wasn't very good at and improving meeting pete and getting injured all at the same time okay
1: so what was your uh this you said it was about 12 years ago you think um meeting pete pete whitaker who's a guy that again you've you've come over here to the states and and done done some of those radical first ascents with and um both you both you guys have a kind of a i don't know what would you characterize your attitude it just it seems to be uh, fun loving and a little bit i thought you you could say bromance then yeah well (laughs) There you go. It's a bromance. You know, you guys wear costumes together and stuff. So, I mean, you know, I don't know where that goes um later on, but the uh you know, and and again, it, it's like you're you're sort of I feel like when you talked about being this fringe person in Sheffield or not really yeah, wanting to go deep into that scene, it's almost like that's part of you guys' game now is to sort of take the piss out of that a little bit um with a you know, a little bit lighthearted attitude. At least on the surface, because then you know the the stuff you guys do is just is like so gnarly that you know it it kind of the 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 kind of I don't know costumes and and hilarious videos and stuff belie the fact that you are trying so damn hard and like you know going way past pain threshold on some of these climbs as well. But how would you characterize like your partnership with Pete Whitaker, this guy that you met twelve years ago?
0: I mean, it, it certainly started off on the basis of that I've, I'd found someone who seemed to be prepared to do things that were abnormal. Um, like me, he didn't particularly want to, you know, tread the same path as other climbers. He was up for doing all sorts of different things. And like the the first thing that we did ever together as climbers was that I'd been trying to uh, sort of try this challenge 24 hour project of soloing as many routes as I could in 24 hours and I was really keen to break this record that some other British climbers had um, done the gritstone because mm-hmm. the routes are really short so you can solo a lot of routes in time mm-hmm. and I couldn't find anyone that would do it with me everyone was like oh that sounds like a terrible idea um, why would you want to climb for 24 hours you know all, all the good reasons for not doing it and I suggested it to Pete and he didn't even question it. he just went oh yeah that sounds brilliant Uh-huh and So when we went and did it together and it went really well and we realised we had a very similar character, we can kind of dig deep. When we commit to something, we really don't back down from it. Right. But it was full of fun and just laughs and very, very goal orientated and all this sort of magic mixture that happens just on that very first time of doing something together. Uh I think we both realised that we had something really good there and we should just carry on climbing.
1: So what was your scene like in terms of full on, you know, dirt bag climb every second I get kind of climber back then?
0: Uh, well, there's no dirt bagging in the UK. Okay. Because it rains too much. Okay. So if you dirt bag it, you, you'd die in a... Right. <laughs> You end up with some sort of hideous fungus, right? Right. Or something. <laughs> uh, so that's not really possible, right? Um, or you just get called a tramp, right? And not a dirtbag. That sounds a bit more respectable, doesn't it? A dirtbag. Um, no, I, I was root setting mm-hmm. for a indoor gym, and so I was kind of surviving on uh, a minimal wage that uh, paid for my rent and was enough to be able to travel around the country and just go climbing all the time. So if I wasn't route setting which was generally three days a week i'd just go climbing the rest of the time i'd block it together so i could go on trips and, mm-hmm. and whatnot so it was just trying to choose a lifestyle that was as complimentary as possible to doing a lot of climbing
1: so the uh, what what about the the your first taste of um of the desert of coming to the u.s and climbing um the style of cracks that you get on sandstone over here
0: well, that was on that trip when we came over for the Off With trip. Okay. That was the yeah the first time that we did it. And if you imagine for us, we spent so long kind of dreaming and p- preparing for this trip that the energy was just sky high for it. Mm-hmm. And so to combine such an amazing location, really good style of climbing, plus the duo we had and the energy, you know, has made a an everlasting partnership and uh motivation for doing that style of climbing and i will always have a really really positive feeling around it and so i've just got this amazing thing that i see so much good stuff i just want to it's like an addiction you know you go in it's like your your first gambler's experience gambling experience if you had a great one on the first time you you're kind of tempted to keep going back right right keep reliving the high and in a
1: way it was like that because the first trip was so just so mega. Uh-huh. How did you guys uh, get clued into that thing? I mean, we're talking about the century crack, right? The, the, the off-width on the white rim. Well, that, that was the Stevie Haston project. Yeah, yeah. He'd written this...
0: I can't... It's a long time ago now, but he'd kind of written a relatively vague article, mm-hmm. I think, on a project that existed in the desert. And he would said that there was this monster down underneath the white rim, and it was a 9A off-width. Um, and... He'd mentioned Crusher Bartlett in that article, and I think Pete somehow had a connection where he knew Crusher, and we just ended up, uh, you know, sending him an email and saying, hey, we're two Brits, would you help us out on it? Uh, Because I don't know if we contacted Stevie initially, because we are a bit scared of him. Yeah, of course. And (laughs) so... And Crush is so nice. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> That's and, a better and, way to go. Yeah, it's a better it, route. <laughs> and helped us out. And I think we might have kind of, once we got the Crusher ticket, we'd gone back to Stevie and said, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to go. Um, and then Stevie gave us a little bit of a list to kind of follow and okay. said, you should do this and this, and then you'll be sort of ready. And uh, so, yeah, really, we owe a lot of that trip and the ability to find it and everything like that was to Crusher.
1: Yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. Because um, I actually have my own... Uh, crusher type story in that same zone back in the um early 90s my buddy and i were into finding new towers to do like just uh you know first a sense of of towers and and uh we only knew about this crusher person like we didn't know anything about this pre-internet you know it's like we just heard rumors that there was somebody called crusher which is a great name yeah um and and that he was sort of down there as well or doing things down there as well. And so we would, like, you know, we'd come up to some tower we thought had never been climbed before, and we'd see anchors on it. And, you know, we'd both just, like, you know, raise our fists and yell, Crusher! Like... (laughs) And it turns out we were right. Like he was banging them out. And then in years past, we found out that he knew about us as well. And we never knew about, like we never talked to each other, but he knew there was these kids from Fort Collins that were like trying to do towers down in Monument Basin. And he was doing towers down in Monument Basin. And now we've connected and been like, oh, that was you and told him the whole story. So it's a cool, cool way to, to find out where that crack is because, I mean, you've been down there, like trying to find it on your own would be pretty much impossible yeah well you'd have to walk a lot of miles yes, yeah and yeah. you guys probably did because you started finding some other stuff. yeah well the uh, I think it was
0: I think it was the second trip we went mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. we actually spent and it's it's hard to kind of overstate how much effort this was, but we spent an entire month in the white rim just walking and exploring. We didn't do any climbing and that's just going down there day after day with a jeep and, you know, the supplies that you carry in and just walking around caves, abseiling in, jumarring back out, finding some good stuff, finding some bad stuff, mm-hmm. getting lost. And we explored that entire White Rim for projects because Crusher had said to us after we'd left Century, and he'd gone, there's got to be something even bigger, even better. And Century I think, is just the start of it and you guys should check it out. And we'd had a very quick look at things on the drive. Out when we'd left Century, and we found maybe a, I think we found like a 50 foot roof crack and that was a light bulb moment where we went, ah, oh, he's right. It's not just Century on its own because it, sometimes people over egg things and it's, it's just not true. Um, but when we found something so quickly just by hopping off the side of the road, we thought we've got to just book an entire month just to explore and try and find all the projects. So we spent that time mapping every project in the area and since then we've been returning every year to try and take everything off.
1: And when you guys were talking to uh to Stevie, when you finally, you know, screwed your courage to the sticking point and, and were like, Yeah, okay, let's talk to this guy and he he actually's been on the show. I interviewed him and I had the same exact feeling um that like this could go terribly wrong or whatever. Um he was super hungover and was just a a peach actually. It was really nice. But um yeah, I mean he's notoriously sort of uh, cantankerous, if you will. Um, and he, so he gave you the blessing to—I mean, because he hadn't done it right. It was—it was this idea that he had, or he tried it and had had failed. Yeah,
0: I, I can't actually quite remember how it went right. in terms of whether he gave his blessing or—I know we we went through his tick list, right. and, and we achieved that, and so we felt like we were somewhat ready and mm-hmm. sort of done the approved Stevie list. And and he'd said that we needed to prepare for it sort of way beyond what we might expect we'd find, so tr- overtrain over for it. And he talks to us a lot about kind of hanging upside down and loads of core training. But I I don't think he really knew quite when we were heading out right. or what our exact exact plans were uh-huh. or, or anything like that. We it, it was probably more like we'd got so motivated so motivated and so driven by that stage we're just on a mission. We literally didn't think about anything else. So whether Stevie had sent us an email or not saying something, I've probably just blanked it out right. because we're like, we're going on that date. We're going to do this. Right, right. We're going.
1: Yeah. But then he took the piss out of you guys because of the uh, pre-placed gear, right? Yeah after, yeah, after we were on that trip. Right, because that's all in the movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And uh, and they actually, don't they even interview him at the Wide Boys movie, right? Yeah, they do, yeah. yeah. And he's just like you know scoffing because you guys replaced your gear. Yeah, yeah. So then you had to go back.
0: Yeah, so we went back. Um, right. It's actually it's not ex- it's not exactly the kind of like exact true story. Okay, yeah. In some respects, here we um, go.
1: So, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to remember it all. So now I'm going to bring it all back up. Okay. <laughs> um, so I
0: personally don't have. Steve, you're probably going to break my legs for this. Okay, he doesn't listen. Uh, don't worry. Hopefully, he doesn't listen to this. I'm not entirely sure about how the style in which he was trying it. Right. I think he was trying it with pre-place gear. I've looked at the photos. We've both looked at these photos right. of the stuff, and I think he was trying that way. But he had that. Uh, he took the moral high ground on mm-hmm. it. So that was one. I'm not entirely convinced about how he was doing things um, because I couldn't find any lead photos with the, the gear actually on him. Um, and secondly, was before we'd gone down, we would spent quite a bit of time talking to Piz, Rob Rob Pism, and we talked about style and how we would try things down there. And because we knew Rob had been trying that Necronomicon project down there, and he was, to us, was the kind of the local and knew the most. And when I'd spoken to Rob, he'd gone, man, you guys are mad. Like, why would you place 10 number six friends in a row and carry that massive rack just leave it in just have some burns fall off leave the gear in go further and just do it until you do it like who cares it's a big massive roof crack and people would just do that and it was very much sort of portrayed to us at the time that this wasn't a really big thing actually Uh, so we kind of went into it not quite with the sort of hindsight attitude that we in a way sort of developed from it And then when we did the route quicker than we were expecting, and it was almost like a, we should just have a go. Like we worked it a little bit. Why don't we just have a burn thing as the cams are in? And then when it happened, but then it tied in with the whole thing of what was Stevie really doing? And Piz had said, you know, just chill out. Right. It's, It's a massive roof crack. You don't need to do that. It ended up with us going, well, maybe that's cool then. Yeah. What's the big deal? So we walked out from it really psyched. And then the backlash happened, and then we were a bit, a bit confused, and we we're like, "Ah, oh, crap! Stevie's unhappy with us." <laughs> he wrote an email. It's like your, it's like your dad, right. when he's really disappointed in right, you, right? And it was a real disappointment email, and huh. that's when we knew we'd kind of cocked up. And then when the forums got behind it and everything like that, and back in the days when forums were actually, right, you know,
1: people got fiery. Oh, they still do, but they're just they're dying. Oh, there. <laughs> the, the forums are dying out, but they're still out there. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and so it was. It was because i I only saw. I only knew the Stevie part of it. You, you, it was out there, like in the in the internet realm, that you guys had like been cheating down there or something like that. How, how do you mean? I mean, you, you you got backlash elsewhere too, except for from. I mean, besides from this this disappointing email from Dad.
0: Yeah. So because we because so we we had a blog that mm-hmm. we'd written um, whilst we were on the trip. That was back in the days when blogs existed. Yeah, Like, we actually started that blog at the beginning of the trip because we'd had our first bit of uh, sort of sponsor support. I think they maybe paid for half the plane tickets or something like that and given us some kit to be able to do because it's really expensive in terms of kit. And back in those days, me and P were like, we need to be professional. We should get a blog. What should we call the blog? Oh... No, it needs to sound professional. And we were kind of caught between either wide boys or pony shufflers. And we're, like, <laughs> we're kind of like, with boys, we're wide. Oh, but we're sort of pony shufflers as well because of the whole wide pony style of climbing upside down. Okay. And we kind of flipped and flopped. And then in the end, I said, Pete, sponsors aren't going to be happy if we go for pony shufflers. I, I just have this what feeling. What the hell
1: does that even mean? I don't even know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the blog was nearly called, you know... Pony blog, Shufflers. Blogspot.ponyshufflers.com.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's... The film would have been so much better yeah, if the Pony Shufflers. Shufflers. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but isn't, like, Wide Boys some reference to, like, Tough Guys? No. No? It's no, not, not at all. Oh, okay. It's just a blog that okay. we had to name. All right.
0: And then it it stuck from there. The British climbing scene at the time, I think, called us the Sheffield Cowgirls. <laughs> I think we were the Sheffield Cowgirls. Uh, And somehow, I I think it was the film that probably did it. The the director just
1: decided to, that that was a good name. Okay. That's how that happened. Yeah. yeah, And then the boys, like Boys in the Hood, you got the Zs on there. Yeah. Because, you know, we're young. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's stuck, dude. Like, you're stuck with it now. So, it's probably better it was not Pony Shufflers. I still kind of want to go back to that. I think it be funny. Not too late, man. Just reinvent yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you went back down and 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 carried all those goddamn cams with you. Yeah, so we went right. back down and we had,
0: <laughs> which and is ridiculous. We Cuz we we're pissed off with right. Stevie and we we're pissed off with the internet and and everything and Yeah, it was, it's a lot of time and money though to just settle a score. Yeah. Uh, that's why a partnership helps. Right. Cuz you fuel each other. Right. right. And and again, because when me and Pete set out to do things, we often get very, very committed mm-hmm. and there is no back down. And so once we kind of agreed to it, it was just no back down. And then it was, oh man, how are we going to do that? So we'll just have to run it out big time and just go for, you know, go for broke on the route. And so we just went really fast and light. And
1: it was it was mainly just actually a, the ability to, able to conjure up the effort for a second round. Yeah, That round. that's, I was just thinking that like, ah, you drive your asses all the way down there again and like, that was hard work. just have to like, saddle it back up only now you're carrying what, I mean, you, did you pare it down to what, like five or six big cams or? I think it was seven. Yeah. So. It was like, we did it 13, I think, the first time then. Right. I mean, that's seven. Yeah. And we're talking like what, six Camelot type things? Right? Uh, yeah, fives or sixes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and <laughs> they're dangling around your head and shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's not quite so heavy than yeah. this that much, though. Right. It's not too bad.
1: Right. Not yeah. like these Valley Giant things that people use nowadays. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. just horrendous. Yeah. So, I mean, you. how long did it take you go, guys to settle the score? You went down there for a couple of weeks or what? Or and you Sorry. had other things to do?
0: No, I went for, down for a day.
1: Oh, just for a day. Yeah. And fired it. We're angry. Called it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in, in, in the, the, the big thing that's, I think, really interesting i don't know if you guys invented this uh but you're definitely early adopters of this of like the indoor upside down crack training kind of stuff i mean i guess it sounds like you got like tips from from uh uh from the godfather there over in where is he at malta or some shit where does ah uh, St- yeah i to, think he lives in like is it a uh island called Gozo, yeah, yeah. Gozo, it's like okay. one of. The, I think it's in Malta. I think it's like one yeah. of the islands. But anyway, so he's he's like, yeah, you got to hang upside down and do sit ups or whatever. Um, but did, you know, did you guys sort of feel like when you were when you were creating this training regimen, were you did you feel like you were like making it up or were you pulling uh, inspiration from somewhere else too?
0: Um,
1: I mean, because you you basically like trained for one of the hardest off with. In the world, really, you know, just completely remotely before you'd ever even seen it, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We had a small uh, photo copy from a magazine stuck on the wall at the end of the crack. We just used to look at it. And and it had the words like, eyes on the prize or something like that on it. Uh Um, And I don't really quite remember how we came up with the... I think it was just, we don't have any cracks to train on. The UK doesn't have any hard wits, so we'll have to build something which uh-huh. represents it. And I just bought a house at the time, and we're stripping it out, and there was all these kitchen sideboards and cabinets, mm-hmm. and I figured that they were big, you know, expansive sections of wood. So why don't I just bolt them together and make a crack? And it was. And we'd, I think we, it was after we'd been successful with Century Crack that some people started a message to say, this hasn't, this has been done before. Right. And like Paul Nyland from the US, who I knew through Sterling Ropes, had sent me quite a few photos of them training back in the day. And they had these uh, parallel wooden cracks li- uh, sort of linked up in the house and they were going through doorways and stuff like that. And even just recently, someone sent me a photo of some amazing crack training venue back in... 1970 or something. In fact, it was
1: it's in Jimmy Dunn. Oh, Jimmy Dunn.
0: Yeah. I saw a photo of his crack training setup. Oh, okay. It looks amazing. But you know what I was thinking? I don't understand why they didn't climb harder. I was thinking that that was surpri- uh, quite surprising because you can get so good on this artificial form of crack. it's It's way beyond climbing outside. Like the stimulus is much greater, it makes outdoors feel relatively easy. And so it does actually surprise me now looking back at it that those guys weren't climbing 514 all the way back in time. Maybe it's in the mind, I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's all about Uh, vision for sure. I mean, it's hard to believe that like, you you know, sort of, let's take sport climbing. It's hard to believe that like modern sport climbers, you know, your average person that's, you know, climbing, let's say hard 513 is stronger than Tony Yeniro was. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's there's a vision that tells you you can you're you're supposed to be doing these sorts of grades. I think it's kind of hard to like wrap your head around it, but um, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, y- Nero was a beast. Yeah, right. Yeah. and so, but oh, are they have better technique? I don't know. I think it's just a vision of like, well, this is possible. I know this is possible, so I'm going to be able to do it. Mm. But uh, but do you know about Levitt and the and the whole uh, Boulder the CU Garage and the levitation on the upside down I, yeah, cracks. Yeah, yeah, I do But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like the the OG, the original thing I ever heard of, where they were developing the 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 knee hand stack kind of uh movement that that, in, at least in the U.S., got called, dubbed levitation because of Randy Levitt. Yeah, and that was a CU uh bouldering uh or CU parking garage in Boulder that they found these perfect roof cracks. It's not in. there anymore, is it? I don't. I don't know. I actually. think I've asked yeah. a while back, and someone said yeah. they knocked down or. I would imagine. I mean, I'd go there for sure. Yeah. For, I mean, it's for like off with climbers, it would be, you know, like the sort of the, the mecca or like the this yeah. place you'd have to visit and burn incense or whatever yeah. for a minute. Well, it was like that for me when I went yeah. to the crack house. Oh, uh, right on.
0: And I'd grown up with, you know, videos of Dean Potter and Masters right. of Stone. I remember the first time I walked down there and I just stared at the rock. I, I couldn't believe it. It's like being in a
1: film. Yeah, yeah so, so, you know, and and like the off with thing has become uh, again. The, I mean, the wide boys—that's the name. But uh, I mean, do you have this thing down there. Is you, you guys are still messing with right? That's some just hideous finger crack. Yeah, the crucifix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> M- messing slash failing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, that sounds just absolutely brutal. Yeah, it's it, that's a. Uh, so, multiple
0: levels beyond anything else that's around it's right a, yeah it's a bit it's a big leap, hence probably why we haven't done it yet. <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's a long way ahead. Okay.
1: And I've got you here. So, because we, uh, my friend Andrew and I took the piss out of off with climbing a bit um, on this other podcast that I do, The Run Out. And, and we were Good. just kind of like, <laughs> and actually the, the century crack came up because we were just like, well, how do you end up with a grade on something like that? Or like, a, a you know, what it's, is, does it remain 9A? Because I know that's what... what uh uh-huh. no
0: no we we just went for whatever we thought would probably just wind some people up right <laughs> so went for 514 something
1: right right so um, yeah i mean it, and that's is that it you're just like pulling it out of a hat it was like really hard for us and who cares kind of a thing you might as well yeah i mean
0: <laughs> when since when like because of that thing like where are the rules right if you do the first ascent you can say whatever grade you want and uh-huh. It depends on, I mean, it, it does come down to like how much repercussion you want from this stuff and you, sometimes you pitch in it exactly what you want. Sometimes you wind people up by giving it a lower grade or a right. higher grade. Uh, sometimes you, 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 you'll overgrade something because it's such an unusual area. You want to kind of draw people in, mm-hmm. um, just to get people to go and do repeats and to kind of show how good a classic can be sometimes. So, I mean, we were just, pitching in with a grade and we compared it to the effort that we would make on other things stuff that we thought was below it stuff that was equivalent to it in you know the normal st- styles of climbing in inverse right. comm- commas
1: and just went for so it's like this martini that you mixed up and yeah pour it out <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> pour it out 14 whatever <laughs> came yeah. out of the into the glass kind of a thing
0: and I think loads of people right. think that we're bothered about whether it could have a downgrade or whether the grade's right or... I don't care. I really... Yeah. I'm just not that bothered about whether someone says it's exactly right, above or below. I'll just go, thanks. Right on. Thanks for your your opinion. Awesome. Uh, We'll reach a consensus eventually because I think you should not get too attached to to gradings on it, Mm -hmm. on, on any routes, other than that it's probably good to... One, not endanger people too much if you're trying to set classics and you think that people are going to find themselves in a really horrible situation. I think it's probably good to stay away from that. And then likewise, just not downright fabricate, you know, lie about stuff. Those are the two scenarios which probably
1: should stay away from. Although I'm sure there's nuances within that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sandbagging people into scary situations is a long tradition in yeah. in climbing, actually, <clears throat> and in the UK, I'm sure. Um, and Danny repeated it, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. I was and, so pleased nice. about that. Yeah, and he's your buddy, so he's not going to downgrade it. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's why he I picked did? him. All oh, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't know. Actually, he doesn't. I, know. No, Danny doesn't listen to us, does he? Oh, uh, I don't know. No, no. I,
1: yeah, I picked him.
0: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I, knew, all, I knew he was put sides. Of exactly.
1: Bit. <laughs> it's all part of the. It's all part of the conspiracy to keep keep Century Crack rated what it is. Yeah, I can't have it being five thirteen. <laughs> just be awful. <laughs> so, do you think uh, these trips down there will remain in your in your uh, in your future? Looking at some of these other roof cracks down there. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll keep going down there. Yeah,
0: It's just too much fun. I mean, the route, the architecture in itself is just so impressive down there. And like a route that we did maybe two or three years ago, which was the the Millennium Arch. Mm -hmm. It's this massive 300-foot arching roof crack. You're just not going to find anything like that anywhere else in the world. I mean, when do you get to climb on a 300-foot roof crack? Right. It's just such a unique you know, experience in itself, let alone a, a good bit of climbing and rock. So there's just nothing like it anywhere else I go. So that's why me and Pete will right. keep going down there and it's out and it's wild. No one bothers you too much. Right. There's a few ranges that you I
1: mean, yeah. Do you, do you, is it all right dealing with the, the rags down there?
0: Uh, we've, we're like we've reached, we've reached a happy medium with okay. it all now. Right. We've definitely had a few run-ins with various, bits and pieces yeah
1: yeah i mean it's a lot. you know i i think we first set foot in monument basin in 1991 and uh yeah the stuff's changed so much compared Mm to to back then you know um being down there And, and the fact that it's so popular with with bikers the white rims like pretty heavily regulated uh for camping and stuff like that so but like anywhere you figure it out Figure out ways through the cracks, pun intended. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, well, that that's awesome. And you know, after I think that was like the first international kind of thing in terms of the U.S. Like, oh, who are these guys? That that video and and you know, just the saga, if you will, of coming down there and then going back and all that sort of thing. But now you've sort of parlayed it into sort of a you know, sort of a benchmark in your career, um, and started creating. You know, taking that seller idea and creating uh, training. What? What are they? are not holds. What are those things? Uh, I guess you call them volume. Yeah, yeah the volumes, volumes the yeah. crack volumes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, tell me a little bit about that thinking and how you sort of uh, made the little bit of a leap to that. I think first of all, it was really born out of the fact that we started doing
0: quite a lot of uh, crack teaching off the back of uh, doing a lot of crack climbing and. I've been a coach for year, well, most of my life now Okay. Um, so I've always had an interest in teaching and sharing expertise and knowledge back to people and Pete's a good natural coach I wouldn't say he is a coach because he doesn't do it for his profession but he's very good at that and so when you combined our interests and force forces in doing that we ended up running a lot of these things that we call the crack schools to teach people how to do it but it was a bit of a kind of ramshackle persuading people to make some basic crack volumes for us they weren't always that comfortable or durable they weighed an absolute ton and um after a while we we kind of went should we just do this properly right and actually make something that is exactly how we'd want it that we want to train on and we want to teach on and we both like doing practical things and it's well, you get, you get a free training device out of it, which was, you know, a nice thing to have for it because they're, so they're all down in my cellar. Um, and it's just nice having an object which is kind of fit for purpose for the thing that you enjoy doing. And that's where it all came out of. So it was it was a solution to our mm-hmm. problems in mm-hmm. a way. And we weren't entirely sure where it was going to go and whether people would actually think, climbing cracks indoors was a good idea maybe they should just keep <laughs> keep staying out, outside right um, but now they turn up in, in international competitions every now and again And yeah yeah like, like I loved it when I saw Ondra cruising a crack in a comp yeah totally it was amazing yeah
1: yeah I mean he he. Uh, well you must have paid attention and been pretty psyched I mean you know traditionally and, and I'm someone who's climbed an Indian Creek forever like it used to be the tradition was that like the Euros would come over and just all get their asses handed to them like But then that started to change, you know, that's because everybody there, or there's so many people that are such great climbers that, yeah, they spend a week learning and then they start crushing, you know. Um, But it was pretty cool to have Andra show up and, you know, basically like knock over a bunch of stereotypes just by walking into the creek and, I mean, and sending like super hard. You know, was that a surprise to you or you just stoked for him or what? Uh, definitely not surprised because he comes yeah. from the Czech Republic. Yeah,
0: and I don't know if you climbed over there at all, but it's full of sandstone crack um, and there, just steep, steep cracks, vertical cracks, wide, thin, every possible style, um, and they're really and there's some really hard ones as well. So really, he has the the pedigree, the heritage to mm-hmm. be able to perform in that way, mm-hmm. and he's a really good climber like he yeah. actually climbs well rather than just being strong or fit so it yeah it wasn't in in, in any way a surprise to me whatsoever uh, especially given that the hardest grades in the creek are a fair chunk below his maximum sport grade so even if he was climbing in the creek in a 13b and he didn't do it quite as well as a, a local might I mean he has such a high margin of error that you combine it with some generally quite good technique, uh, and he's going to be fine. Um, we, I, I mean, me and Pete quite often are like wish we could get him down the cellar. I wonder if we could burn him off. <laughs> I think we
1: could burn him off. Oh,
0: I'd love to burn off Andra. <laughs> Wouldn't that be brilliant? Yeah, totally. You, just,
1: you could just quit then. Couldn't you? I, I bet you could. Do, I, after if oh, after the yeah. Olympics, he'll come. Send the invite.
0: Yeah. We sent the invite out to the Japanese
1: climbing team. Uh-huh. You haven't heard anything? That was a no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, those guys have bigger fish to fry right now. Um, but have you done belly full of bad berries? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, have, yeah. So, yeah. yeah he told me that that was the, the most effort he'd ever put into a climb. The second time. Ah, really? Like when he did it. Yeah. He was just like, I was I as max as I've ever been mm-hmm. on that, which was pretty rad you know, trying to get it, get it, um, get it done. So, yeah, yeah. Pretty- I, I, I had, to uh, so uh, w- what I'm saying is that you could totally burn him off. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. well, <laughs> uh, the, well, one of the funny conversations I've had with him in the past was at a film festival when we were out, out for dinner. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I just thought it's just too tempting not to do a wind up on that, you know, that, uh, route that he did in flat hang of the, the silence mm-hmm. where he kind of flips upside down mm-hmm. and puts his feet above his head and climbs a crack. And I I just had to suggest to him that I just thought the technique was, he wasn't doing the right Right. technique. And potentially if he like actually climbed it properly with like some good crack technique, maybe it's easier. Right. It's not so bad. Um, And Adam being Adam, he took that comment really face value and and he (laughs) kind of pondered and he like turned his head and, no no <laughs> and then he like started breaking it down and talking about right, all the options and right, i was right. thinking oh this is blown up in my face isn't right, it right yeah. i was trying to make like a, <laughs> yeah, you know, a joke yeah taking the piss, so, taking the piss for out of, 20 right. seconds and now we're doing a full breakdown <laughs> right. on the crux of silence <laughs> and i'm sat in a curry house with andre
1: <laughs> that's pretty cool though yeah oh, it's funny yeah so i i honestly though i think i think it's a good a good safe bet that he'd he'd want to come to your crack cellar. He was stoked. Like he was stoked on crack climbing um, yeah. and, and, and had a great time. And, and now he's on this whole nother mission at the moment, but um he's a proper he, climber, yeah, he's a proper climber and, and having a really good time. I get you and Pete sort of like mixed up in my head. The wall climbing thing that Pete's gotten into is pretty impressive. Have you been involved in that stuff as well? So I've, I've done some big walling with Pete. Right. Um, yeah. In fact,
0: the first time that we, both went, well, the first time that Pete went to Yosemite was on a big walling trip with me. Um, And we went and did, what did we do? Um, uh, El Corazon, Free Rider and something else, Golden Gate. Um, So we went and climbed a a load of routes together. I have to say for me, it was one of those trips where I really struggled and I'm not a big fan of exposure and heights at all. And, I found it, I guess, somewhat frustrating to not be able to climb at my limit right. because I couldn't relax enough. And so when I was really scared, I think the hardest picture climb was like a 13C. And that is the maximum that I can climb when I'm really scared. I, I just can't pull it off because I'm just so tense. Um, and I realized that it was going to be a very, very tall order. For me to climb beyond that, and I was getting limited. And I think, I mean, if you're really honest about it, I guess I took the easy way out by not dealing with it and saying I'm not going to go big walling and mm-hmm. try and try and do more free routes on on El Cap. As a result, it was it was more of a decision of I don't think this is my area. I don't enjoy it. It stresses me out, and I'm not able to operate at my my limit, which I, I feel a little bit gutted about because I enjoyed doing stuff with Pete and. I still, when he's over there each year, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I was out there with him doing right, that stuff. Right. But I'm, I'm also somewhat of a realist. I wonder
1: who he's climbing with. I wonder if he's having as yeah. much fun with them as he has with me. He, he says he doesn't. <laughs> okay.
0: I ask him every year. I'm like the housewife when he when he, re, when he returns from his trip. I've got I've got my pinafore on. Exactly. I'm in the kitchen. <laughs>
1: did you have any fun honey <laughs> no i didn't <laughs> it was work <laughs> every minute of it yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> more tree than you can possibly imagine <laughs> uh-huh. all right well yeah maybe the jealousy will one day get you back up there it'll it'll be enough fire yeah, to make yeah. you go big walling again <laughs> i do keep promising to him that i'm gonna go out and climb with him again out there okay well, I mean there's a lot of other stuff to do besides on El Cap in that zone, so. Yeah, I mean, but that's generally a lot of rock. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so I mean at this point, uh how old are you? I'm about to hit 40. Really? Next week. Oh man. Geez, one foot in the grave. I was you know, I didn't know that you had kids. You got two kids. So yeah. you have you have a family life. Yeah. Um you've got a your your uh your professional life is coaching um, you know, books these volumes uh, just kind of a a mix of climbing related stuff in terms of your professional life as well as being a sponsored climber of sorts yeah i'm a bit of a, a bit of a, a mismatch
0: um i'd say i'm yeah kind of a, a mixture of professional athlete whatever professional athlete means to different people mm-hmm. um and then yeah bit of business owner and and that nowadays i actually enjoy both of them equally and i i find it a really hard mix to get right for different parts of the year because i find myself just as driven in both of them and i get the same kind of rewards actually Mm -hmm. interestingly and when you're quite an obsessive person it's hard to pull back from one to allow space for the others for the other and and how you you mix that with your your family life and the fact that if you're really, really going hard on your career and your job stuff, it's very hard to go climbing six days a week. But if you're wor- if you're climbing six days a week, it's very hard to look after your career or your business. It's a proper jumble. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. It feels a bit chaotic, but I work really hard and I put a lot of hours in and definitely sacrifice quite a few things that may be uh, somewhat enjoyable and I don't do them. But I, <laughs> like what? Uh, Like I don't watch TV. I I don't do very much socializing down the pub and going and doing really relaxing things. I I don't get to read books very much. Um, Although I've got into audio books now because I've realized that's an efficient way to process information when I'm in a car. Right. Um, And I sacrifice quite a lot of time with my family that I know I won't get back, but I I have to, you know, I have to sit with that decision. Um, And, I know my reasons for why I do things and it's just a, it's a balancing act. For right. Sure. Right. Yeah.
1: Do you, I mean, do you reevaluate? I mean, do you sort of force yourself to reevaluate now and again? All the time. Right. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a weekly thing. Okay. Every week. That um, seems healthy to me. I mean, the reevaluation of not just like, you know, waking up two years from now and realizing it's all a wreck. <laughs> yeah that's what i'm trying to avoid because that happens i mean that happens a lot with people's lives and r- relationships and family and stuff like that yeah. you know it seemed fine and then all of a sudden you realize it, it wasn't at all so reevaluation would be a big part of that let me ask you this is kind of a last thing is uh about climbing hard you know you just mm. sort of you know oh, i'm about to turn 40 you know when is about like the next couple of days uh where are we what the, what's the date today i don't even know it's the end of january i'm fifth yeah. of, of february okay so yeah it's right around yeah. the corner so you know climbing hard you just talked about like one of the things about L cap or climbing up high is that you weren't able to get to your to climb at what you feel is your sort of maximum potential because of these other factors like that seems to be really really important to you is is that something you sort of think about in terms of like the sustainability of that and and the sustainability of you in, in, you know, this climbing realm as someone who's 48, you know, I had a really, like when I turned 40 was those few years were actually really good for me. Um, I climbed really well then, but I'm, you know, I'm starting to feel it. So, you know, what's your evaluation of like this obsession to climb always at your limit or, or, or climb hard in terms of sustaining that? Do you think about it? Is it, is it ultimately, you know, the only thing you like about climbing or is there a lot of aspects of climbing that you you'll you'll find just as much uh motivation for do you think
0: i think there's many many aspects to climbing that i enjoy and i will always get something out of mm-hmm. uh, so i think the easiest way to define it for is not necessarily climbing at the limit so talking about kind of grades it mm-hmm. might actually be be better for me to define it as the ability to try my absolute hardest. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I was trying a route just a few days ago, and on my first red point attempt on it, I just completely fumbled a hold, just a stupid fumble, and it really frustrated me because I didn't get to try hard, and that was the most important thing. I I didn't really care that I, hadn't, that I failed and fallen off. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated that I didn't get to go to the red line and ideally have the red line for like 10 minutes I mean that's great fun to go and do that which is kind of one of the reasons why off with thing and crack climbing and stuff is good fun so I think it's that when I look at my own progression and my age and things of like that I'm more motivated than ever and every year it just seems to get an even higher level of motivation and I'm really grateful that whatever causes that I don't know what it is but it it does and so I've got this fire that burns that's great and I wake up every week and I want to do more and I want to go harder and I want to do more and more involved challenges which push me even deeper into the hole and I I just can't see why I'm going to stop or where that'll be. I know it will happen. It isn't really a a part of my thought process. Okay. It's a bit like um, I was asked uh, a number of years ago in an interview about failing. And what I thought about failing, and how much do I think about if you take on a really hard project? Do you kind of think about what it would, would it suck to tell your friends, your family? Would you feel let, you know, would you let down your sponsors, everything of like that? And I just don't think about failure until it's right there and it's happening, and then I'll deal with it. But it, I, it's kind of like a thing that doesn't exist until it's in your face and you just failed. And you know, this sucks. This is so horrible. I hate it. So it's not like I hate it any less or more than anyone else, I don't think. It's just I don't really think about it at all until it's a reality. And I think I'm somewhat taking the same approach with when I'm going to do something different in my climbing. I just don't see the point in kind of worrying and fussing about something that hasn't happened. I don't know when it is and it's a bit unpredictable. And And I, I've seen a lot of uh, benefits and uh, kind of happiness and satisfaction over the years about treating failure in that same kind of way, and, and i don 't i 've had loads of failures and i don 't have a problem with them, but i don 't dwell on them before they happen or particularly after they 've happened just <laughs> just do it yeah when it 's there,
1: right on it's keep painful. going, done. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sitting down and, and making this happen. After uh, we've been messaging each other for for quite a long time about getting this thing done, and uh, now that you've done it, I will unlock the door to the guest room and you know not make you sleep in the garage. I've earned so, it now, yeah, you've earned you've earned the king size <laughs> bed in uh, the remodeled guest room. So welcome to paradise, sir. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to this now. <laughs> thanks again, Tom all right folks thanks for listening and thanks to tom for showing up it wasn't going to happen then it was going to happen then it wasn't going to happen and then it happened and anyway i hope you guys are hunkered down someone you love some friends you're not out climbing right right folks you're not out climbing you can handle it look Talk to anybody who's been injured for a little while. You can live through not climbing for a few weeks, even a few months. Okay? So just deal with it. Read some books. Listen to some podcasts. Go on a long approach to nowhere. Get out the origami. I don't know. Whatever you can think of besides climbing that you can do in your house, six feet away from everyone else in the world. Do it now. Of course, we don't have a lot of knots to check right now. let's just switch that to checking on each other all right let's check on each other I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you.
0: You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system
1: of government. (laughs)